Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So, at GEICO, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip sync star. Now, it's our turn to share with the GEICO Giveback. A 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit geico.com slash giveback for more info and eligibility. Forgotten is a new podcast about hundreds of young women who have disappeared and turned up dead in Juarez, Mexico, right across the border from El Paso, Texas. It's a story about borders, migration, and corruption. We talk to victims' families, FBI agents, and a former U.S. ambassador to understand why these crimes have remained unsolved. Listen to Forgotten Women of Juarez on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. As I go through the case file one last time, three moments stand out to me. It's September 11th, 1989, two days after Janie Ward died. It's around noon at the Junction Liquor Store in Big Flat, Arkansas. A pickup truck pulls into the parking lot. Gary Don is the driver, and he's hauling two kegs off the back of the truck. He comes inside, says that one of the kegs is untapped, and he wants a refund. His request is denied. The keg is several days old, and it hadn't been on ice. Gary Don asks again, more aggressively this time. He is refused again. He hadn't even brought one of the keg taps back. Gary Don gives up. He slams the door of his truck, annoyed that he couldn't get the money back. It's April 2007, and investigators are asking Sherry, who was one of the passengers in Ron Rose's truck, about the night Janie died and what she thinks happened. There was no one down there fighting. There was no one doing anything to her. She had no one who disliked her. There was no boy that she was dating that someone else liked, and, you know, all those rumors that have always gone around. So that's why I just don't believe that anything happened to her. In all these years in school, you would think there would have been rumors among the kids. No. The only ones who've ever made allegations and who brought up rumors have been her parents and adults, not the kids. There's no way that if something bad had happened, it would have not somehow gotten through the kids at school. Even teachers hear things. The teachers never heard anything. It's always been these outside. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't think anything happened to her. That same day, investigators interview Kim. She says that September 9th, 1989 was the worst day of her life. Worst day of my life. It's been 30 years, and we still don't know how Janie Ward died. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Janie's third autopsy was filled with observers. There was a representative for the Ward family, a forensic anthropologist, and ABC had their FBI consultant, Brad Garrett, in the room. 
Brad worked at the FBI for years. He worked on tons of high-profile cases. Because of this, he got the nickname Dr. Death. When he first started looking into Janie's case, even before the third autopsy, he didn't think anything pointed to a homicide. Well, it, you know, it was really unclear to me based on the initial evidence that I looked at. And, you know, and I will say that it, it, it struck me that the Arkansas State Police really did a great job of trying to figure out what really happened at this cabin. And I, I started getting the flavor of, and I told ABC this early on, was I'm not sure this is a homicide. It could be. But it, it it's not, in my mind, not at least at that point, going together as as sort of a clear cutter up and uh, up and up homicide that it really could be something else. Is there anything specific that you remember about this case in terms of the? Is it more challenging than cases like it? Is it similar? What makes it different? The important thing for the public to understand is that people form opinions about what happens in cases. Obviously, families, God bless them, form their own opinions because it's very difficult. And let me tell you, I've worked a number of child deaths. It's very difficult for parents to accept that, you know, their child, in effect, either died by accident or by their own hand. In this case, I'm not suggesting at all this was by her own hand. But the point being, there's like this opinion formed. And then the parents in a very rural county now are promoting that this was a homicide. They're not really going to be interested in anything but an outcome that says that. And you made it, you said something in the program about uh, talking to the kids, and you said it'd be hard to have a conspiracy if there were something like 20 people with a similar story. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I find most conspiracies laughable because, you know, I, I, I used to hear these constantly that, you know, the FBI colluded to cover up. You can't get two agents to to collude on something, so let alone to get an entire system to. And what would be the motive of doing that? Right. I realized that there was, you know, controversy, if that's the right word, with a local judge and the local judge's daughter and, you know, allegations made with really nothing factually to support it, of course. Many of the suspicions that get brought up in the news articles about Janie and on the Justice for Janie forums have answers. But these are still questions that get brought up constantly. And rumors continue in Marshall, across Arkansas, and, as Janie's case continued to get traction, across the nation. You know, anytime you have, I suppose, public exposure of a case that, that draws particular conclusions, or, you know, for example, when you look at the second autopsy, which, you know, sort of reinforced the ward's belief their daughter was murdered, you know, you you then, you know, sort of get an emotional reaction from the community uh, as to, you know, well, maybe that's what happened, you know, whether it's really true or not. But, you know, we're all, I I think, suspect or or vulnerable to the stories of others in driving our own narrative. I mean, that's the problem today in trying to figure out what's actually true when certain people speak. Let's just accept it or question it as to, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's probably not true. And so, you know, people, particularly folks like average everyday citizens, they don't really know. I mean, from the standpoint of what what does it take to actually prove these cases? Is there really any evidence to support one side or the other? 
other than just sort of idle chat about it or what some media outlet might say about it. I will tell you, because I've worked so many high-profile cases, that I just sort of ignore all that because, you know, the facts are the facts. And wherever they drive you to – now, you know, sadly, the facts don't always – because maybe even the lack of facts or evidence – you know, they draw you to not a really solid conclusion. When I talked to the ward's lawyer, Jerry Sallings, he didn't think the first investigation was done very well. But Brad Garrett said he thought the Arkansas State Police did a pretty thorough job investigating what happened, particularly because it was all happening in such a small town. I know I was a little surprised. Um, The witness statement seemed really short, and also they um, didn't, I was surprised that more they weren't separated in question that night in a, in a more thorough way. Right. Because I felt so, like that made it difficult so, later. Right. So investigative protocol is supposed to sort of be the template of how you investigate a case. Separate the witnesses, sort of lock down the scene, and basically you don't let anybody leave, or you make sure you've got the names of all the people that were there, which in a place like Marshall, Arkansas, shouldn't be that difficult. But you, you, you still have to understand that I doubt if they were thinking that way. Let's face it, a, a deputy sheriff uh, in that county, I'm sure, doesn't make much money. That obviously affects the, the quality of person you're going to get. And again, it's nothing against the people who were there who did this. It's just that it's it's going to be hard to get somebody that really has a lot of experience or super qualified to work in a super rural county unless they've got just some passion about living there. On Janie's death certificate, both the manner and the cause of death are still undetermined. But because it's not definitive, can we say that the wards are completely wrong in their perception of what happened? That their daughter was murdered? And can anything we find support what the family believes? You're not going to make any family feel better unless it fits the fact pattern as as to how they want it to be. And so could anything else be done in this case to support the family's fact pattern? And I, I don't think there is because I don't think there's evidence to support that, you know, like that one totally unreliable witness claimed mm-hmm. that she was struck uh, with a board or a bat or a club and that she went down. First of all, there was no evidence. There was no forensic evidence on her body to support that. But again, there's nothing to suggest that any of that occurred. So I, 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 you know, I've walked away from a number of families basically telling them literally everything I could tell them about a case that was appropriate to tell them. And, you know, they're just not happy with what I'm saying. And, and I fully accept that and say, I totally understand. So, but I can only be driven by the facts, my own experience, what the forensics tell me, and I have to go with that. So, you know, I'm open to if you or somebody else could tell me that contradicts what the sort of general conclusion is about this particular case. Great. But nobody has ever come up with that because I just don't think it exists. Now, I, I will say one thing about that. You know, every case is like a pie. Investigators have part of it. The, the prosecutor obviously has a huge part of it. The medical examiner and the medical 
professionals, forensic anthropologists, et cetera, have a part of it. But you have to take each one of them in perspective, you know, and what if you put them all together, then what do you have? You know, mm-hmm. with all the failings and biases and opinions and so forth, but what do you have at the at the end of all that of that pie going together? And you know, and so I, I say that in that when you take the first or second autopsy, okay, they found X or Y, fine. Is there anything beyond what the medical examiner, because let's face it, that's a clinical examination of a body. That's yeah. not with all the facts and circumstances that cops, detectives, prosecutors are finding through evidence collected, through interviews with people at the scene, people who saw her fall, people who thought she was choking, people who poured beer on her, if that was the case. All of these things, you know, the medical examiner is supposed to stick to his or her lane. This is what mm-hmm. I found in the autopsy, and it, great. And then you go from there. So what you have in this case is a third autopsy by a sort of a seasoned professional and a forensic anthropologist to tell you the fact pattern that she was beaten to death with something is not there. We'll be right back. Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So at Geico, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip sync star. Now it's our turn to share with the Geico Give Back, a 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit geico.com slash giveback for more info and eligibility. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. We've been able to answer some questions about the circumstances surrounding Janie's death. Our producer Gabby and I sorted through what we know, what we don't know, and at this point, what we can't know. One of the things that the family thought was suspicious was the fact that Janie's dad, Ron Ward, said that he had seen Janie in a different shirt when he saw her at the morgue the night that she died versus what he saw in some photos that the investigator, Bill Beach, had showed him um, a couple weeks later. We did look into the shirt and we did figure out some things about um, the shirt. So what were some of those things? Well, we figured out, first of all, that uh, she Janie stayed the night before the party with her friend Leslie. And according to Leslie... Janie borrowed that shirt from her, and so she she was wearing both. Multiple witnesses said uh, that they saw her wearing the black T-shirt over the white pinstripe shirt, because um, including ambulance attendants who um, were trying to revive her at the scene, they specifically remembered rolling the sleeves up and, and um, pulling up the bottom of the shirt to expose her stomach and rolling up the sleeves to, to expose her arms. At some point, someone must have removed um, the white pinstripe shirt, and what happened to that item of clothing is a mystery because we know that it was lost by law enforcement at some point. And that's just another one of the tragedies of this case because one of the biggest questions that the family had 
was why, um, how she got all that debris under her clothes and what exactly that was. And of course, you know, now with forensic testing, who knows what could be accomplished, but they lost the evidence. Okay, so one of the other big questions that the journalist Mike Masterson brings up in his column is this idea of the 90 missing minutes. And he brings it up because there is a police dispatcher named Harold Young who said that the truck in the route from the party to the bank parking lot did stop at the police station. So what what have we been able to figure out about this? It's very confusing. Well, I think the 90 missing minutes is like a classic example of something that was it was put out there. And um, it's not necessarily correct, because first of all, in a lot of the, the early reports, I saw that the time of the sunset was wrong. It, it was it was it was described as being around 630 when in fact it was around 730. And everyone at the party basically said that um, they said when people when things started happening, when things started to go wrong, when all hell broke loose, it was around dusk, which would have been around 730, not 630. And Harold Young made that statement, but he also said that he called the ambulance service. And the two people from the ambulance service who were interviewed by the police both say they never received that call. So there are discrepancies in Harold Young's statement. And Ron, Kim, and Sherry, who were all in the truck, they all told police that they never stopped anywhere. So they are all, all their statements match. Now, could three people have concocted a story possibly I mean but their their statements do match and um, Harold Young it's an outlier he really is the outlier in that and I think another thing that we found that was really important is that there may have been missing time but I don't believe it was 90 minutes it wasn't hours you know it may have been half an hour or longer but it wasn't it, it you know it doesn't seem that it was an hour and a half I think I do think that 630 time probably could not have been right just based on what everyone at the party everyone else at the party said they saw Okay, so another one of the big rumors is that she was hit in the face with a baseball bat and killed at the party um, by another Marshall High School student. People would often say it was uh, Sarah, who was a popular cheerleader who came from a prominent family in the town. Her dad was the judge. But it seems in our investigation that there's very little evidence that supports that theory at all. We really looked into this theory and, and the possibility this could have happened, but we just can't find any evidence to point to it. I mean, there are a lot of rumors about, you know, something that happened at the party. But again, when you go back and look at them, you look at the statements, you find the people, it turns out that, oh, it's just something I heard. And usually they didn't even hear it secondhand. Usually it's thirdhand or fourthhand. And, you know, were there, was there some truth to it? Yes. I mean, Sarah, I think because she was a, she was a judge's daughter, because she did have a temper, she'd admittedly like assaulted a couple of other girls and she got in a fight with a boyfriend, slapped him in the face. I mean, there's, there's, she had a temper. And also, she told the police, um, she lied to the police about who she'd come to the party with, and there were inconsistencies in her story. So I can see where that, that all taken together could lead people to conclude she had something to do with it. And also, a lot of people, you know, they just didn't like her. They didn't like her. They didn't like her attitude. And that led them to believe that she could have had some role in this. But Again, like none of the forensic evidence points to that. Not one person at the party said they saw anything like that. The one witness that we did find who said she saw Janie struck with a baseball bat, we've talked to her, you know, about how problematic her testimony is. She's had a couple of different stories. And again, if she was struck with a baseball bat, you would see much more catastrophic injuries to her face. When I talked to the neurosurgeon, the first autopsy one of the biggest tragedies, it was such a simple mistake and something that should have been corrected really early. Fami Malik referred to the injury as a hyperextension injury rather than a hyperflexion injury, which 
you know, they're two completely different things. Then you have all this confusion about whether her hair, her head snapped forward or backward. Um, and that led to, you know, the rumors that she was hit in the face with something which would have snapped her head backward. And that led to, you know, who could it have been and the Dr. Bunnell autopsy. So I just think you can just really see how one little simple thing can just have this catastrophic effect on an investigation if it's not caught early and not dealt with. So throughout this case, a lot of what we've seen is that the wards will say one thing and then other people will say something else. Like, you know, they said they saw a clear fracture in the x-ray when they visited the crime lab. But then in the x-rays that they got sent to them a few weeks later, uh, showed the spine blocked out. Also, they said that they received death threats. And there's just sort of some of these these sorts of things that... It doesn't there doesn't seem to be any way to prove one way or another because it is what they saw versus what other people heard and saw. Yeah, I think that um, there are some things that we it's very difficult to prove one way or the other. Like, for example, um, we can never know what Ron actually saw when he saw Janie's body. He described it, but obviously we can't know that we weren't there. And we also can't know. You know, when when Ron and Mona saw the x-rays and they say that the, the x-rays they saw later were different, we really have no way of knowing that either. But what we can say is that they definitely felt that the system was not working and they felt people weren't helping them and they felt that people in power were being treated differently. And they also were afraid and they were so afraid that they moved and they put their other daughter in a different school and said they were getting death threats. So... There was definitely, they seemed to feel that there was an atmosphere of fear in the town. When we talked to Richard Walter from the VDOC Society, he described a similar environment in Marshall. And a lot of other people did, too. Several reporters said that uh, people weren't cooperative or weren't helping. And and then there was another journalist we talked to who said they received death threats, too. So it's only, it's a few people's word, but we can't get inside their head and know their experience. We can only report what they said to us. One of the most frustrating things we can't know is Janie's full toxicology report. Some listeners brought up this theory from the beginning. Could Janie have been poisoned by accident? At the party, the host, Jay, made PGA, that's pure grain alcohol punch. And in it, he put orange slices that had been soaked overnight in rubbing alcohol. Here's his interview with Bill Beach again, describing the punch. There's been some discussion about the fruit that was put in the punch. Was there any special preparations yeah. taken? Well, we soaked the fruit for over 24 hours and rubbing alcohol. What was the purpose for that? So you make it a higher content. Then you pour all the rubbing alcohol out and the fruit will absorb it. Very little alcohol Where? and no drugs were found in Janie's system. Her blood alcohol level was 0.05. That's about one drink. But that's ethyl alcohol. Rubbing alcohol is isopropyl alcohol. And in the first autopsy, Dr. Malik didn't test for it. One of the pathologists who reviewed Dr. Malik's work in 1992 pointed out that the toxicology screens were limited to cannabis, ethyl alcohol, drugs, and lead. Rubbing alcohol poisoning is rare, but it can be fatal. According to the National Library of Medicine's Hazardous Substances Data Bank, its acute potency as a central nervous depressant is about twice that of ethanol. Eight ounces is a lethal dose. 
but as little as 100 milliliters, or just over three ounces, can be fatal. So I had our producers Gabby and Taylor do an experiment. We wanted to see how much fruit Janie would have had to consume to ingest eight ounces of rubbing alcohol. So they followed Jay's recipe and soaked the fruit for 24 hours. Okay, so basically what we've done is we have three different oranges. We have an orange that's cut into pieces of four. We have eight pieces, smaller pieces, and then we also have one that's peeled. With these three oranges cut into different quantities, we're trying to see if it's possible for one orange to absorb enough rubbing alcohol to be fatal. Basically, can the oranges absorb a lethal dosage of rubbing alcohol? That's a lot That's of rubbing lot. alcohol and not very much orange. It's been 24 hours, and we take a look at what happened. Doesn't look like that much of the rubbing alcohol was actually absorbed in them, and that was in our different control environments. And it looks like only about three, yeah, about three ounces was probably absorbed by the fruit pieces. We determined that to get to the lethal amount of eight ounces, Janie would have had to eat around three oranges. That's not impossible to imagine. But that's a lot of oranges, especially considering the fact that they smelled so strongly of rubbing alcohol. But with 100 milliliters, she would only have to consume about one orange. In several witness statements, partygoers mentioned that Janie was chewing on the pieces of fruit. In fact, Ron Rose specifically said she ate a cup of the fruit. He said she may have thought that this would be weaker than just drinking the punch. And in a police report, investigator Bill Beach said that when he went up to the cabin that night, he found orange peels on either side of where Janie had fallen. And... Though the orange peels were bagged and logged into evidence, they were never tested. In that first autopsy, Dr. Malik said that Janie had 10 ounces of digested food matter in her stomach. So, Janie was drinking and consuming the fruit on a relatively empty stomach. He wrote, though, that in the stomach, tomato particles are encountered. No oranges are noted. We reached back out to Dr. Grace Dukes the pathologist who had reviewed the three autopsies for us in the last episode. First off, we wanted to know if Dr. Mallet could tell the difference between tomatoes and orange particles. No one else mentioned tomatoes or food of any kind at the party. And since Dr. Mallet only did a visual inspection of the food particles, could he actually tell the difference between tomatoes and oranges that had been soaked in the red PGA punch? Sometimes you can tell exactly what it is. Sometimes you can't tell at all. But if she, you know, were not chewing well, it would be fairly obvious what was in there, especially if it were mixed with just liquid where you, where it could separate out easily. If he says that he saw pieces of tomato, I would imagine that that would mean something fairly specific to a tomato, like either the seeds or a large piece of food. In terms of the oranges, it's kind of like if you were to, again, people chew their food to varying degrees, but it's kind of like if you were to put food in a blender and blend it up a little bit. If you only blend it up a little, you could definitely still tell that there were orange pieces, you know, and how, how, how it has that kind of fibrous look. But if it were, you know, if it were chewed beyond recognition or it spent a lot of time in her stomach, you would potentially not be able to tell that. So the answer is maybe, maybe not. Uh, but people frequently will report which type of food items they've seen in the stomach contents. Dr. Dukes describes some of the effects of ingesting rubbing alcohol. 
The thing with rubbing alcohol uh, being isopropyl alcohol rather than ethanol, which is what we think of as, you know, drinking alcoholic beverages would be ethanol. Uh, isopropyl alcohol, the effects of that would essentially be the same as as ethyl alcohol. There would be the same sort of uh, in a in an inebriated person, you know, impaired balance, slurred speech, things like that. The difference is that with isopropanol, you're going to have more of an intoxicating effect than with ethanol. So really the effects you see would not be different. They just might be more pronounced in someone who's ingested isopropanol. The level of alcohol that is fatal in a person varies quite a bit. There are some limits that have been set previously as sort of the norm as in, you know, this is a lethal level and this is not, but that can vary according to tolerance. Most teenagers haven't had enough, you know, time to build up their tolerance, but it it can certainly vary. Um, So really the answer is that there's no specific limit. With this in mind, Janie could have had even less than eight ounces and had enough in her system to make her sick. Her mom, Mona, and people who knew her said that Janie wasn't much of a drinker, so she most likely had a low tolerance. Isopropyl alcohol has a lot of the same symptoms as being drunk. Drowsiness, slurred speech, stumbling, headache, and vomiting. If someone is overintoxicated, their heartbeat slows down, their breathing becomes more rapid, blood pressure drops. They may have seizures or collapse. They may experience pulmonary swelling or inflammation of an excess fluid in the lungs. This can make breathing difficult and cause oxygen deprivation. If not treated in time, it can cause cardiovascular collapse and death. The body rapidly absorbs isopropyl alcohol. Symptoms are at their height from 30 minutes to two hours after consumption. The bottom line is, Isopropyl alcohol hits fast and hard. Dr. Malik noted in his autopsy that there was intense congestion in Janie's lungs and in her liver. I wondered if this could be a symptom of alcohol poisoning. So those, those autopsy findings are, are not specific to uh, an alcohol poisoning. And when you say alcohol poisoning, that just, I mean, that just means over, over intoxication, right, to the point that it's toxic to your body. But there aren't going to be necessarily specific findings associated with it. It's essentially a, a, it has a CNS depressant effect. And then if one were to keep consuming and consuming and consuming, then it would potentially cause general, generalized sort of organ failure, but it's primarily based in the CNS depressant effect, meaning, you know, depressed sensorium, which would eventually contribute to decreased breathing which would potentially progress to death. Based on what Dr. Dukes is saying, just like we've seen before, so many of Janie's symptoms are not specific to a particular cause of death. But rubbing alcohol poisoning is possible. Yeah, so if it were present at a high enough level, it would certainly be a potential cause of death. The issue is just that we don't have a level reported if it were present at all. Dr. Dukes said that if it were to the point of being lethal, Janie would have been visibly intoxicated. In the witness statements, only a few people mentioned that Janie seemed drunk. One was Sarah. Sarah said that when Janie called her a snob, Janie was stumbling up to her 
and warned her not to eat the fruit. Ron Rose said that Janie appeared to be intoxicated shortly before her death. Jay said the same thing in his reenactment video. We may never know for sure what killed Janie, but we have to look at probability. And we found some other pieces of evidence in the investigation that do suggest rubbing alcohol poisoning. Lividity, or darkening of the skin due to blood pooling, sets in at around two hours after death. But more than one person noticed that Janie started turning blue almost immediately. One partygoer said, she started turning a darker color all over. Then, one of the ambulance attendants who treated Janie at the scene in the bank parking lot made the comment, she was not as blue as my jeans, but she was getting blue. Turning blue, especially blue coloring of the lips, or cyanosis, is an indicator of oxygen deprivation, which is one of the symptoms of rubbing alcohol poisoning. Ron Ward said that when he saw Janie in the morgue, she had blood around her mouth. Blood in the mouth can come from gastric distress, which is yet another symptom of isopropyl alcohol poisoning. Another thing was that one of the ambulance attendants had smelled a faint perfume on Janie. A fruity smell can indicate ketones in the urine, which is again another symptom of alcohol poisoning. As we said, alcohol poisoning can also lead to cardiovascular collapse. And in the third autopsy, Dr. Pless did suggest that Janie could have died from a heart arrhythmia. If Janie collapsed from alcohol poisoning, her condition might have been exacerbated at the party. She was lying on the ground, gasping for breath, when at least one person, in an attempt to revive her, threw a cup of beer on her. Another person had mentioned a cup of water also being thrown on her. This could explain the fluid in her lungs that Dr. Malik had noted in the first autopsy. So if Janie was already suffering from overintoxication and central nervous depression, she wouldn't have been able to expel this fluid from her lungs, and she might have experienced some symptoms of drowning. One is that your throat closes up to prevent any more fluid entering the lungs. And when your throat closes up, that can cause hemorrhaging, which was noted in the third autopsy. It's possible that at that point, she blacked out. I hope so. Because the alternative is that she was on the ground, helpless, paralyzed, and unable to ask for help, while everyone continued to party around her and pour beer down her throat as she lay dying. We'll be right back. Never has the world of golf been more fascinating or more in flux. Thanks to a suddenly newfound appreciation for a sport that millions love and even more millions have missed watching, my new podcast, The Shack Show, hosted by me, Jeff Shackelford, will be that safe space to discuss matters both vitally important and totally escapist. So as the pro golf tours ease back into business and recreational golfers rekindle their passion for getting outdoors and getting easily aggravated, and maybe minus a few bunker rakes, some cart sharing, or those awkward chest bumps, the Shack Show will be in your queue, ready to offer the sport's last independent voices sticking up for what really matters. Each week, I'll interview a wide array of golf's smartest, funniest, and most compelling minds as we attempt to gauge the state of the game. And sometimes I'll just chime in with a quick take on those inevitable first-world golf dramas. So listen and follow The Shack Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The reason I'm an investigator is because I want to answer families' questions. But in Janie's case... I can't definitively answer the big question of how she died. Remember parents of murdered children? 
That's the organization where the wards found Dr. Brunel and the VDOC's Richard Walter. When we talked with their executive director, Bev Warnock, we also spoke with their volunteer coordinator, Sherry Nolan. She became involved with the organization when her daughter, who was pregnant, was killed. I was talking about how one of my goals as an investigator is to help families. But when I mentioned closure, she told us that isn't something we or anyone can provide for a family. Well, we, we make sure we don't use the word closure. No one likes to hear the word closure. Um, we had someone here that used to say the only thing that closes is the lid of the coffin. The grief is so devastating to them. You know, it's not just you have the funeral and then you try to recover. They have to go into the justice system and then years later the parole block system. So it never ends for them. It never, you know, and it's not something you can, um, you know, after a couple months, years, you know, you can kind of feel like you're moving on because you can't. You, you know, your mind is just consumed with you have guilt that you didn't say you, they loved them before they left or, you know, any other kind of guilt. There might be a lot of survivors still guilt. The healing process is to talk about it and to be with other families, just to be able to talk to them because they understand. No one else would understand. But we also make it very clear that we understand the grief and the pain, but we don't understand individually their grief and their pain because no one knows exactly how I feel. It was my daughter, my granddaughter, but I understand the pain and grief that we all go through. And I, I never, you know, a lot of questions that survivors ask is, when does it get better? When do you get over it? I think that they ask that because other people say it. And so I always say it's not that it gets better, it's just that it's different. You never say that they'll be healed. It's a healing process that will never end. And never tell them that they'll be over it at any point in time because that grief journey is a, is a journey that you'll always be on. At the beginning of this investigation, I thought that people might be more forthcoming because so much time has passed. I also thought more people would come forward with renewed pressure on the case. But the thing is, they might have already come forward with everything they know. And over the years, there has been a lot of pressure on the case. It was reopened in 2004, reinvestigated, and was a high-profile case in the state of Arkansas. I wondered if anything could have been done for her at the party. Could she have survived? I asked ABC's FBI consultant, Brad Garrett, about this. And, and, and all the stories, I mean, do you, do you think that there's anything that they could have done more to help her? Well, I, I, you know, when you, when you talk about people helping other people, you have, to, you have to look at it in context. Where are you? You're sort of in the middle of nowhere in Arkansas, which means, you know, the luxury of where you all are. Like I'm in Washington, D.C. If you started to choke on something, you could probably get an ambulance and or the fire department to your house in five or six minutes. Probably not realistic in, in Marshall, Arkansas. And they did, in my view, and, you know, other, could they have done something at the scene? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, if, if you believe that, in effect, Janie choked to death, uh, if you believe that, that I'm not sure what they could have done, I mean, you know, unless there happened to be a, a paramedic or an EMT, but you're talking to a bunch of high school kids, so the odds of that weren't great. And so they did really what I would think is the next best thing. They didn't wait for emergency services to come to them, if in fact they even exist. They put her in the back of a pickup truck. Now, and it was sort of unclear about how much of a lag there was between when she went down off the porch of this cabin and when she was actually taken. You know, I got different 
time periods, but at, at some point they said, we've got to get her to a doctor uh, or to somebody that can take a look at her. So what ultimately is Janie's story? Janie's story is a tragedy. It's a story about a town where there was enough distrust between some of its citizens and the authorities that wild rumors could be believed. It's also a tragedy that a lot of the people in Marshall, Arkansas, are tired of hearing about. And it's a story about a family who never got answers. Janie died in 1989 at the age of 16. And her father, Ron Ward, spent 30 years investigating his daughter's death, which was almost twice as long as she was alive. Ron is gone now as well, and I can't help but admire him. He wanted the truth. He wanted to live in a world that had answers and justice. He wanted his daughter back. Throughout this season, people have continued to reach out to us about unsolved cases. Parents, siblings, friends, spouses. They are all desperately trying to find out what happened to their loved ones. I think about season one and Rebecca Gould's father and sister, Larry and Danielle, who were still trying to get justice for her. I've learned a lot from Ron Ward. He shows us that you can go a long way if you don't give up. You can get a case reinvestigated, a special prosecutor appointed, and even another autopsy conducted. You can also get the information made public so that other people can come in and try to get answers. I've learned the importance of never losing faith in the fact that one person can make a difference. With enough pressure and time, anything can happen. It's a lesson that I'm taking to heart as I continue to investigate Rebecca Gould's murder. At the beginning of the season, we talked about time travel. On that fateful night in 1989, many of the partygoers were teens themselves. 30 years later, a lot of those kids are adults with kids of their own. A lot of them have teens who are the same age as they were when Janie died. And right now, those teens might be heading out to parties in cabins in the woods. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Helen Gone. Helen Gone is a joint production between School of Humans and iHeartRadio. It is written and recorded by me, Katherine Townsend. Taylor Church and Gabby Watts are our producers and story editors. Executive producers are Brandon Barr, Brian Lavin, and Elsie Crowley for School of Humans, and Connell Byrne and Chuck Bryant for iHeart. Our field producer is Miranda Hawkins. Theme and original score are by Ben Salee. Available wherever you get your music. Please visit us at HelenGonePodcast.com or follow us on social media. Though we're apart these days, we're sharing more. So at Geico, we'd like to say thanks. Thanks for sharing your savage dance moves. Thanks for sharing your DIY haircut fails. Thanks for sharing your inner lip sync star. Now it's our turn to share with the Geico Give Back. A 15% credit on car and motorcycle policies for current and new customers. Because we're committed for the long haul, the 15% credit lasts your full policy term. Visit geico.com slash giveback for more info and eligibility.
Hey fam, Jada Pinkett Smith here, bringing your favorite Red Table Talk episodes to podcast. I want to introduce you to two of the most important women in my life. My mom, Gammy. She's really old school. I never wanted you to be in that situation. Like, no. not date Will at all. And then we have my daughter, Willow. I'm going to be like my ancestors and just do what I need to do. Listen to the Red Table Talk podcast presented by Facebook Watch and Westbrook Audio on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.